0: Three, two, one. Jane Alaconis. Perfect. I did it right? Yes. Okay. (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs) Good. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I know you're, you're super close by now. Well, you went from UCLA to USC. So in that too big of a a distance, you didn't have to move, did you? Did not have to move. Okay. Very convenient then. Yeah. Okay. I want to jump into that right away then. How was the first season?
1: It was hard. Uh, It was really good team. Very, very good. So I'm grateful for that uh rocky like in terms of being a new head coach uh it's a little scary but i think after having year one down i feel really good but again just like grateful that my team was so good Mm. and rough start at the beginning and then some players came back from the u20 world cup and i think we had a winning streak of nine or or not losing streak of a really long time and i was like Mm. wow (laughs) enjoying riding this wave
0: it was the first two games right i know you guys were 0-2 to start Yeah. And then after that, it kind of, like you said, it was a good, good moment for you guys in that, like you're saying, it could be a little bit scary at the beginning. And then obviously, 0-2. Were there any doubts that were creeping in? Because I feel like with any coach, that kind of happens.
1: For the TCU game, they were ranked fifth. So I was like, if we can get a result here and just make a quick turn, uh, we'll be okay. So that game was super important. And we came out with a goal in the first few minutes and then scored two more. So after that, I think we were onwards and upwards. But Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the beginning and and really any time I walk into a game with soccer, you never assume that you're going to win. So every single game you walk in knowing you have to prepare the best you can to hopefully pull out the result.
0: Mm. From your UCLA days, you probably had, were you super aware that maybe one day you could be a head coach and a lot of the things that maybe Amanda was doing or the staff around you were doing, were you picking up on little things and saying, okay, there's going to be a time hopefully when I do become the head coach and transition and I want to make sure that I'm not just letting every day pass and wasting this time.
1: Yeah, my joke would always be I'm a head coach right now because I would have uh, U8s, U10s, U14s. So obviously, that's way entirely different than what I do now. But I did feel like I've at least had the experience of leading teams and when I was in the classroom, leading a group of 30 kids. So comfortable in that regard. But now that I actually know the role, like the chair is totally different than what I thought it was.
0: Yeah, you have to almost trust yourself. You trust your voice yeah. when no one else will, I think at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, your voice, your gut, and the people around you, for sure.
0: Mm. And you were teaching at one point mm-hmm. prior to getting into coaching. Yes. And that segue of you're speaking to a, a big classroom of people and then you're dealing with complex emotions of everybody how did that transition with you to coaching?
1: So I was in inner city Baltimore and I taught first, second, third, and 10th grade. Wow. Uh, obviously at different times, but I did 10th grade during summer school. To me, that was actually the easiest. So everyone says, oh, you're lucky you had the young kids. It was probably easy. Like they're still sweet at that age. Um, but my school was Title IX school, like 98% of, of students on free or reduced lunch. Mm-hmm. And just any sort of craziness you could kind of imagine on the daily basis like we we encountered (laughs) but yeah in terms of prepping for becoming a coach I always say like if you're going to get into coaching you should teach first Uh, a lot of people at the club that I worked at would teach and then come and coach kids or come and coach the older ones for me in terms of organizing lesson planning trying to differentiate for each person it's super important when I had first grade you had some kids who barely knew the alphabet. And then you had kids reading chapter books. So you had to meet them where they were at and gradually just chunk things so that they could learn the next step. But something someone told me when I first started teaching, they said, kids will teach you very quickly what you're not good at. <laughs> and I remember at one point, like one student was chasing another student with a chair, trying to catch him and beat him up. And classroom management was was very difficult in the beginning. Uh, And you have to get that done before you can even learn to teach or get the kids to hopefully learn. But yeah, every single day, I think I was probably embarrassed and just giving it my all and things weren't going well. And then over time, like when you really learn to hopefully get every kid on the same page and get get them to care for you, you care Mm -hmm. for them and listening and buying in, it's a lot easier. But yeah, certainly for a year, probably all three years, like every single day, you're really grounded and showed what you're not mm. good at
0: it stretches you yes <laughs> that, that adversity gives you thick skin um but you said something earlier organized that's an yeah. kind of adjective that we can use for you so in terms of how people would describe you is organized hard working i from from what i've read the work ethic is some theme that a lot of people would share about you so for you how do you think people would describe you
1: good question mm. um I love the organized piece. I love taking what I learned from teaching and bringing it into coaching. So probably the players say that I do way too many presentations and show way too much stuff in the classroom. When I do it, I always try to involve them. I like to show what we're gonna teach on the field in the classroom before we go and do it. But I would say people would describe me as a coach that, has a very clear idea of how we want to play in attack and defense and then hopefully someone who's very passionate about the game and just loves what i do every day so if they say i'm hardworking, it's i don't really <laughs> feel like i'm working it's the best job in the world
0: i think uh, i was speaking to michael E. Rush, who we both know he was just like i feel like it's, it's a hobby and he's just we're so blessed to go to work and a lot of the things that we want to apply it's to a hobby not so much a job and a lot of the things that we apply we can kind of see if it worked or it didn't work Versus I think some people who have like an actual job, a lot of what they're applying is for somebody else. And they can't really take away those lessons with them, I think, on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, how the team plays on the weekend, the results we get, like every single day we can have a result and think, how did we do? And what did we do during the week that helped us get there? Or what do we need to get better at?
0: Yeah. And you said presentations. I've done those before. I remember my first season with Las Vegas. And I did like a, a profile of each player of the the strikers. And I said, this person likes to do this. This person likes to do that. And I gave it the presentation. And none of that happened on the weekend. And it was just like <laughs> <Of course. laughs> they never crossed the ball in any of the videos. And then all of a sudden, this goalkeeper had like four crosses. And I'm like, shit, I didn't prepare you at all. So I think how how have you been able to manage those presentations so that they're not taken literally?
1: Yeah, I mean... I like looking at the data. I think that gives you a lot of good information as to how a team is dangerous and potentially how we could exploit them. Uh, Within that, when we do presentations, I say a goal of ours is to do less talking than the players do. So in Mm. teaching, they would say, if I tell you everything, Omar, and just say this, 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 you're going to learn it less so than if I said, okay, Omar, you watch these clips and you tell me. So Yeah, we actually give a lot of ownership to the players and we say, you need to look at this. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And yeah, one day they were impersonating me and and giving the presentation (laughs) and they showed something. I say, now, what do you think? Now, what do you think? But it's very purposeful. It's like guided discovery.
0: Mm -hmm. I think guided discovery is such a unique skill and young coaches don't use it enough.
1: Yes. You want to be the one to say, this is what it is. You do this. Mm-hmm. Very to the point. Yeah, I watched a coach do that one time and I could hear the boys because we were back to back in line and they said, oh, I wish coach would just let us play. I wish <laughs> I wish we could play. But I have a theory that if we let kids play 5v5, 4v4, depending on the age, and we did that for multiple hours per week, they would probably actually developmentally be better than if we just and told mm. them everything that we know.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that's very, very true. I think the we talk about a guided discovery is is huge. And for you, what are some misconceptions about you?
1: Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think maybe like I try to not emotionally erupt or take out frustration or anger on players. Uh, I like to be fairly cool. I think sometimes that comes across as, as quiet or relaxed when I think deep down, like I'm extremely passionate. I love the game. I love the players. I'm observing i'm watching but i'm not always screaming Mm. so i like serena vigman she coached england who won the euros this past summer i think she's incredible Uh, i want the gold glasses that she has (laughs) and the i think it's a marks and spencer suit but i love how she's just tuned in stays cool and makes the best decisions in a clear headspace
0: Mm. you can almost see certain coaches that don't react not that they don't have passion but like I think we're just so used to in in maybe the American culture of kind of like fiery coaches. And that's how you get the best out of players. And in every movie, they're depicted that way. So I think we can almost use that as the kids can expect it. So why don't we do it? Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's more calculated, like you're saying.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it's the coach's role in a way to bring the energy up at training. But if you stop and the players bring it to me, that's even better. Mm. So I don't want to be the one that's always like dragging the energy out of people. When I talk to Mark Krikorian, who's one of my mentors, and I love him. I think he's amazing. He said that in his time at Florida State, he raised his voice probably less than 10 times. Mm. So I thought that was really powerful.
0: It's that shared, yeah, shared accountability between the coach and the players.
1: Yeah, it was a basketball coach. I I don't know who it was, a famous one probably, but he was like, a plumber doesn't need a pep talk. If the plumber doesn't do his job, he doesn't have a job. Mm. Um, And I said that to the players one time and they're like, what is she talking about? (laughs) He tried it. Let me put that that away. Never use it again.
0: The plumber quote. (laughs) And something you said too, I like is the training environment. Yeah. How do you create a training environment? Is it something new every day?
1: I was really lucky, a lot of people would hate this, but in my early years as a coach at my club that I played for, Mm. uh, my director handed us all a paper and he said, this is your session plan and you're gonna do the same session, it was with U10s. Here's your coaching points, here's the things you have to hit. We all follow, we have the same exact field size, same exact setup, someone actually set it up for us, the timer would be the same. And it would be U9 girls, U9 boys, U10 girls, U10 boys. And developmentally, like we would have the same exact sessions. And so oh. <laughs> I would do the same session 12 times. And he would say, these are attacking principles. These, this is what you bring out. So do the same exact thing and coach it. The philosophy in that club, like every single thing we did was opposed. Every single thing was max effort. So I remember I did a warm-up game one time and the, the youth director, who I was friends with, it was okay, but he's like, don't ever do that again. You stick to the lesson plan and you do it and you bring out these points and the club plays the same. Wow. So yeah, and, and at age seven, eight, nine, we would have seven v seven. So my, my coach loved the diamond. So he would go two defenders, then a diamond. Once we got to nine v nine, four defenders, diamond. Eleven v eleven, obviously four diamond two. But yeah, everything in the club was like you do this as hard as you possibly can. You ingrain that in the young kids. Uh, And then it's automatic when they're older. So I know that was really just speaking to my background, uh, but I appreciate that I learned that way. Here in the college environment, it's the same idea, though. Like, we do everything with a sports scientist, John Cohn. He's Mm. one of my idols, mentors. (laughs) He's really, really genius. But he'll help us plan stuff down to the rep, down to the minute, number of players, size of the pitch. Obviously, in the women's game, like, we've seen far too many knee injuries, injuries in general. So we're extremely careful. That we do everything as hard as we possibly can, as realistic to the game as we can. Like it should look like a cutout of the game, but that we do it very, very safely. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy, but it's awesome.
0: (laughs) Not a lot of people have those resources though. Yes. So how would you suggest, so that you don't get caught maybe in the club director role that you experienced, how would you advise young coaches out there who don't have that?
1: I would say if your club gives it to you, like attacking principles, defending principles, and gives you themes within, try to stick as close as you can to those. Even though they might sound simple, like I would be given the session that says, here's your attacking principles. And it was wimps. With improvisation, movement, penetration, and support.
0: They drilled it into you, huh? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so they would say, these are your only points. This is what you stick to. And we do attacking principles for all of fall. All of spring, that was your defensive principles. But I would say have a clear idea of how you want to attack, how you want to defend, and do everything within that. So we, we start with a game model, and I would imagine some club coaches of course, do that. Of course, yeah. And always going back to that. So we try to say in every activity we do, are we bringing those out? But mm-hmm. the language, we try to make it as simple as possible. Uh, I learned that from one of my mentors named Erwin. But he mm-hmm. would say, when you have the ball, you only have two options. You keep it or you attack. Everything that he has in his game model are words that you can easily shout to the players. So team wins the ball. He either says keep it or attack. We're also super fortunate that we worked with a goal scoring expert or someone who's studied goals. And he's taught us the difference between A shots, B shots, C shots, and D shots. His name's Mark Simpson. But he's revolutionized how I think about getting into what he would call the gold zone Mm -hmm. and creating clear-cut opportunities on goal. So in attack, we use a lot of that philosophy and in defense, we say, how do we keep the other team out of what we call the red zone? Wow. Yeah. It's awesome.
0: And they, you guys do this how often every season is it like at the beginning of the season or do you guys have periods that you do this?
1: Yeah. So beginning of season, we have very, very clear pictures of this is how we want to play. This is how we want to defend when we're in this area of the field. And I model it off of whichever team I think gives the clearest pictures of it. Mm -hmm. But I try to use pro women's examples. We broke it down so simply that the players were like, this is too easy. (laughs) And we're like, all right, then if you score or you have zero goals against, then it's too easy. Mm. But yeah, we show them very clearly in pictures and then put it on the pitch. We have nine male practice players, which is incredible for us. Yeah. So if we do something and we want to test out if it's sturdy or robust, we play against nine men plus maybe two of our players and see how it, it works or where it breaks down.
0: I honestly didn't know the resources you guys had, or like the the I mean, sports science plus like a goal scoring expert. That's I've never heard of that before. Because I'm on the goalkeeping side, so I try to stay away from that. (laughs) We call it goal scoring. (laughs) Maybe I should maybe I should take that course and then pass that information to my goalkeepers. Um, That's for me. When you maybe have a little bit of success as a coach, we've talked about this before on different episodes. But like, you can almost take your foot off the gas and say, okay, you know what? It's worked this way. And there's no reason for me to reinvent myself. There's no reason for me to change anything. And it seems like I kind of would relate that to you in the sense of whenever you're faced with an obstacle, you never look for the easy way out. You always say, how can I not reinvent myself? But how can I add something new to this?
1: Yeah, they say that the biggest predictor of success is being able to adapt. Mm. And we expect that out of our players. So within our model, we use the word situational and we say, based on this, we do that. And we tell players sometimes, okay, this is what we want to do for the first 15 minutes. After that, make sure you're looking around, you see exactly how the game's going. And if we need to calm it down and start to do this, then we'll do that. But definitely like awareness as a group, awareness as a coaching staff. And we say, based on what's going on in the game, uh, we need to be able to adapt. So For example, we played a Japanese team the other week. They were really, really good at pressing high. It was raining, so we got moved to a turf pitch. It was Mm -hmm. really small, and we said that's probably going to work in our favor because the field is super small. We'll be able to press them high. When we do have it, we're going to bypass their press, get behind them as quickly as we can. We'll be able to beat them in terms of athleticism, get the ball as close to their goal as we can, Mm -hmm. and go and score. Make it hard on them, on their buildup, and just keep the game essentially on top of their 18. So we say, okay, despite the rain, the field size, blah, blah, blah. This is what's in our best interest. And this is our game plan.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think the more ideas you can give to players, the more they can kind of fill in the, fill in the gaps themselves.
1: Yes, for sure. Yeah. And our players are super smart. Uh, so if we told them nothing, like they would probably be able to pick up on most of the game and, mm-hmm. and adapt. But there's certainly times where we'll get stuck doing something and we have to say, okay, we have to change it. But I would say ninety percent of the time. <laughs> our players are so smart, they solve a lot of things themselves.
0: That's the USC education, you know? yeah. <laughs> uh, I work. So I worked one year with Steve Terundello, and one of his famous sayings was, it's better to have 11 people following one stupid idea than having 11 player <laughs> having 11 players with each one of them having their own their brilliant own idea. idea. Yeah. I think that's something that I live by for forever now where I'm just like, oh, that's that's a very accurate assessment for those things.
1: Yeah, there's a teacher educator that I follow and his quote is if you chase 5 rabbits, you end up catching none. Mm-hmm. So, focus on one rabbit. Yes.
0: Um so I'm curious when you were talking about how The curriculum was to the T. You have to do exactly as they say. These are the coaching points. Do you feel like that experience has helped you as a head coach now with your assistant coaches to say, hey, this is the idea of what we want to do. But at the same time, I also want to have you have your own opinions and grow as a coach as well.
1: Yes. I think one thing I underestimated coming in as a new head coach, like You have to be very specific of what you want out of people, what the expectations are, what the role is. So now a year into the role, like I'm making sure that every single person, for example, if we get a new equipment person, here's your expectations, roles and responsibilities. This is the time we want the uniforms out the day before. Uh, This is the color we want to wear if, if it looks like this outside, blah, blah, blah. But certainly like I appreciate clear expectations. And I think as a new coach or someone that's new to a role, we say, this is how it's done. This is how we think we can get you to the highest quality as quick as we can. I really appreciate it. I think it would really bother a lot of people, though, <laughs> to say, here's your session and you got to read the lines.
0: Yeah, we uh, we have someone who works at LAFC. His name is Marco Garces, had a, had a career in Mexico, and he was telling me some of the stories about how they would get the best out of their players and they would use this phrase, clear objective, loose instruction. That has stuck with me since it since he told me, because I think, in the goalkeeping sphere, and I'm sure as as a in the game model, you can get so caught up in it has to be done this way, mm-hmm. and there's no flexibility for that player for me i'll I'll speak in goalkeeping terms for that goalkeeper to really have their own flair to have their own autonomy that this is how I want to do things, and every now and again they'll make an amazing save that I couldn't teach you that, but it's in you, and I think there has been times where there is an objective, but the instruction is so like, this has to be done this way. And they have that second of what comes to them so naturally and organically. That half second that maybe they would read the situation and close down the angle and make a save. Now they're like, well, coach doesn't want me to move this way, so I can't do that. And boom, that half second's gone and they score. And I think that is is a testament to certain coaches understanding here's a clear objective. But at the same time, I brought you here for a reason. You have this certain skill set. Go ahead and use it. You create, do what you got to do, and then I'll reel you back in if you go too far.
1: Yeah. When I first started, I told someone, like, oh, pass it to her. And he said, don't, don't you dare tell a player what to do. I'm like, what? I'm a coach. What are you talking about? Like, coaches tell everyone what to do. <laughs> and he said, no, don't ever tell a player what to do. And I'm like, I don't understand why. And he said, they need to be able to make the decision themselves. If they do something over and over and over again and aren't picking up on the fact that they're doing it, for example, Young player turning into pressure, get it again, turn into pressure, get it again. Uh, then you can stop them and say, Okay, you're not going to turn a car into another car. Like, mm. what can you do in this scenario? Uh, but I loved that he said that because I found myself a million times I'm watching a player and I want to say, Okay, you should do this. And then she twists and turns, gets out of it, and does something magical. Mm. So uh, almost every time where I think I need to tell a player something to do, Let her solve it for herself, and it usually ends up better.
0: Yeah. It's those breakthroughs as a coach when you don't say something or you don't act on something. You resist that temptation, and then it works out better than you would have thought. And now you have that to fall back on whenever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Okay, so we covered a lot already, but now I want to take it back to the early days. And the way I like to describe it is if I was the director of your documentary and I had a film crew follow you when you were younger, what would we have seen?
1: (laughs) Um, I had an older sister and we're close in age and probably like a lot of siblings do, we got signed up for all the same sports. So same t-ball team, we did karate class, we did volleyball, we did basketball. (laughs) Um, soccer was the only thing that I genuinely loved. And at that time we were playing with the boys, not because my parents wanted us to be great, but that's just how it was. It was co-ed, uh, rec ball. And then about age 12, I joined a comp team and met my coach, who's been my mentor ever since. And he's uh, probably 40-something now, but one of my best friends, and I talk to him every day. And then not even a year later, uh, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And I didn't know this until I was way older, but uh, my mom was a fiery, like, amazing woman, (laughs) and she called my coach in knowing that she was going to pass. And he uh, he's dramatic, but he said that she grabbed his shirt and said, you need to take care of my daughter for the rest of her soccer career. Make her the best Mm -hmm. player that you can and look out for her forever. I always wondered, like my coach every single day, make sure I'm training with the boys, training with the older girls, like in the best environment possible. Little tips calling me saying, did you ever think about this? Giving me VHS tapes of Gianfranco Zola Mm -hmm. and all of his favorite players. I just thought he was the most amazing coach in the world, and I didn't know it really had any purpose behind it. But when I was 24, he, he said, well, yeah, I made that promise to your mom. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, well, your mom threatened me and told me that I had to look out for you forever. And I knew like, she was very ill. She wasn't seeing people at the time. So the fact that she snuck that in was really powerful and, and meaningful to me. That's how I ended up as a coach, because... I was kind of exploring different jobs, trying out the teaching. I knew I liked it, but I wasn't fully passionate about it. And then after school, I was I was coaching. But my, my coach called me and said, hey, uh, we need a female on staff. Like, can I put you down as my assistant? And I said, OK. Then I would show up and basically just train with the players, his U16 team. Mm-hmm. And then he said, all right, will you like tell them about the college process? So I was like, OK. And then he said, we have a U10 team and uh, the coach just left like they're in turmoil. The parents are going crazy. Like, can you just step in and, you know, try to be the coach? I said, sure, that's fine. And then he same thing happened with like a U16C team and then U11 team. And he just kept saying, I just need you on one more team. I need (laughs) you on one more team. And I remember the first game I ever coached and (laughs) my team was not doing well, but somehow we went up to two nothing, like first five minutes. And then we got five goals scored on us. And after I called my coach and he was like, how did it go? And I said, it was amazing. And he said, what was the score? I said, five to two. And he's like, that's brilliant. You won your first game. And I'm like, no, we lost five to two. But I loved every minute of it. And just especially like working with young girls and seeing them being able to express themselves on the soccer field and battle and be tough and kind of bring out areas of their personality that maybe in the classroom or other environments aren't always encouraged yeah. like it's just an awesome space for all of us to be in after school or work or whatever. I've loved it ever since <laughs> and I still love coaching the little ones. It's one of my favorite things.
0: Yeah, it seems like your emotional intelligence if I would say that correctly, EQ is something that um you were very aware of. Where did that start from?
1: Uh probably um me being sensitive. Mm. <laughs> no. Um Good I I think, day. like, I played so hard for my coach because I cared, I cared for him because he cared for me. Mm. So I think that's always where you start. If you don't actually care about the player, how can we ever expect them to put their heart and soul out there and fight and battle for their team? Um, so... Yeah, I always feel like we come every single day, and it's easy to go through. Okay, we're gonna do this drill, then we're gonna do that. Oh, you scored a nice goal! Good job. Okay, you need to work harder. But do we actually genuinely care about them at the human level? So I try to make sure that they feel safe and like they can play what they think is the best choice in the moment, and they're not gonna get screamed at for mistakes. Uh, when I coach the younger ones, I would one of the first things I say to them is. I coach Jesse, Jesse Fleming, who's at Chelsea now and one of the best players in the world. And I said every single day she would make mistakes. So especially as young players, as college players, we expect you to make mistakes and we just want you to have the bravery to do the things that you see and try to make the best passes, best decisions that you can. That's something I tell players early on. Like if you're not working hard and you're not focused and it's affecting the team, you should get yelled at. Otherwise, if you make a mistake because we're humans and we make mistakes, you Mm -hmm. shouldn't be yelled at
0: by the way, all your mentors should be so proud of you. Like, <laughs> it seems you. like you've had so many and they've been, I'm sure, validated that their investment in you has gone to where it's gone. Now that I'm coaching younger players and, and you start to recognize that like some players, they just have it in them that they want it and want it and want it. And as a coach, you want to invest in those players because you can tell that your energy and everything is not going to waste. When we want to give you what we know and pass on our knowledge we also want to know that you're going to take that investment and not take it as like a, a luxury but it's it's a privilege because we're working hard for you but if you at any moment you don't work hard you're not doing the little things that you can be accountable for then we got to step in
1: yes uh, my coach would, would... He always calls me and has all these phrases, and I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about. And then year or two, three years of experience, I know exactly what he's talking about. But he said something one time, and he said, there's some players that want to make it, and then there's players that have to make it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what does that mean? Well, this person, for example, they wanted to make it. So-and-so who had to make it for their family to get out of wherever to make a life for themselves, like they had to make it. And I don't think he necessarily meant like you had to get out of what you grew up in, but there's something like deep within within you where you have to make it and you won't take any other option.
0: Did you ever have that as a player feeling that?
1: Yeah. Like a, one of my players asked me the other day, she said, what were you like as a player? And I always joke and say a goal scorer, which I wasn't, <laughs> but I said, I was just extremely competitive. Like I wanted to be the best player on the field. I wanted to win. I wanted to fight for my team. And honestly, like Every moment of the game tuned in to do that. So I wasn't super fast. Uh, and I, honestly, I don't know how I was fortunate enough to play at Duke and on youth national teams, but definitely the competitive piece was there.
0: I want to talk about those national teams. What was that? Was that a phone call or how did you get invited to those?
1: My coach was so funny because I think he actually made stuff up all the time just to motivate me, which I don't know if that's a good coaching <laughs> tactic or not, but he said, A national team called me and they said, if you do this, you'll make the U16s. And it was something silly, like run two miles every day and do some sprints. And I was like, I'm going to do it. So I used to do it and I'd run the sidewalks one mile and one mile back. And then I got a phone call and it was funny, Jill Ellis was the coach at the time. So that was super cool to play for Jill. And then fast forward 10 years and she was coaching the full team. I was in pretty solidly with the 16s, 17s for a while. And then I got cut, unfortunately. but Uh, super cool experience and grateful for it
0: they cut you before the world cup
1: they didn't have a world cup that's how old i am oh (laughs) no they got it a little (laughs) bit after
0: wow yeah i read that you won two state national national (laughs) championships or state championships in high school yeah okay and those those moments you were again probably going from the national team coming back to high school correct were you now like de facto leader?
1: We had a really solid group of friends and we played club together and then my coach coached at a nearby high school and so we all were like we're going to that high school so we can play for Scotty. Uh, So I think the fact that we played together in both environments we were super familiar with each other uh, and we were all super driven in terms of wanting to play in college and pro wasn't really a thing as much back then um, but we all had just huge aspirations so Uh, Yeah, we we did club together, and then so so that we didn't have to take a break from training, we did high school. So all year round, we played together. And I think fairly big part of my philosophy, I think players that play next to each other and know what each other are doing, is huge. So we always look for players that can read off each other, combine, uh, fit really well in terms of working together. In college, a lot of teams, at least that we play against, will sit in or make it super compact in front of goal. If you have one player or two players that you know can score... Often those players are man-marked, and then you put multiple players in line to goal. They're just shooting into players all of the time. Uh, it's not going to work, whereas if you combine and you can make your way around people, it's a lot more effective. So sometimes when we come up with game plans, we say, okay, who combines the best next to each other? And, and sometimes we even say, it doesn't matter what position they play. It might be a wing back that then we move to winger, center forward who maybe was a center midfielder, but we just put people together that we know will combine perfectly.
0: I need to be a fly on that wall to see (laughs) what those preps go look like it seems like again it's very calculated and very intent
1: I have the best staff so I'm super grateful but we have a lot of productive conversations and that was something big when I was hired when I hired staff I said I want people who we can sit in a room together uh, and have really productive conversation without egos without saying we have to do it this way Um, so Amy, Shug, Cyrus and I I think we come together really well in that
0: that's a Stretching yourself to stretch your staff is such a an egoless position to take because, again, when you are the head coach or you are in a position that other staff listen to you, it's almost like you feel the responsibility to carry everything, but to alleviate some of that, but also give those uh, coaches an opportunity to grow themselves. You also have to, like you said, have those brainstorming opportunities and like you do with the players and their presentations with the coaches as well and say, you know what, this is the problem. You solve it. Bring me a solution. And I want to hear again. I have you here for for a reason. So tell me what you saw.
1: Yeah, I call my assistant coaches probably way more than they wish I did (laughs) Uh, just to talk through things constantly. I'm very honest with them and say "Uh, this happened today. What do you think? What do you think we should do next? And I feel like I do have a space to talk and share how I'm feeling. Everyone said, oh, the head coaching chair, it's so lonely. Like, it's, it's so different. It's going to stretch you in ways that you never imagined. And I always thought, "What? Well, uh, it's super fun. Like, I love it. I'm wearing all the SC gear. I got the hat. Like, this is awesome. I love it. But certainly, like, as time went on and every single day, like, no matter what happens, if you lose the game, if someone gets hurt, if you have to go on and, and try to put your best foot forward for the team, which can be really hard. And I think when I came into the team, like you come in and you say, oh, I'm the boss. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. At the same time, you're also the new person and I'm kind of shy. So getting to know the players and, and building those relationships over time, I think hopefully makes them feel better and it makes me feel a lot better. But coming in and not knowing, I didn't know my staff and everyone said, when you hire people, like hire people you trust. I said, okay, I'll do that but I don't really know anyone. <laughs> so I got super lucky. I have staff that I feel like fully supports me and they care about the team. They're team first. And yeah, I think just getting the people around you that make you feel supported and uh, that they've got your back through everything is really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How do you challenge people?
1: Oh, I think just asking questions like constantly. I want to know why or how, why something's organized this way. Why would you do it that way? I want every interaction to be productive professional and and feel safe for the other person um so just giving them space to speak their thoughts and try to get things the best that they can i'm not the one that's gonna chase you and be fiery and embarrass or anything like that but if something bothers me like i will say it straight to your face
0: mm, i love that That's you should <laughs> yeah,
1: that's what i want people to do for me uh, you'd never want to hear like oh, so-and-so said this and that, and it upset you, and now I'm upset. It's, no, just come straight to my face and tell me.
0: Yeah. They cut through all the BS. You cut yeah. through everything. It's like face-to-face, let me tell you what you need to hear, and then move on.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's the best way to get to the ending that you want.
0: Yeah. So as a young player, what were the habits that young Jane had?
1: I would say like soccer was my safe space where I loved to be. I felt like I was building my craft and getting better at something. And I wanted to, of course, play for the full women's national team and play in all the World Cups. And uh, the 99 team was really inspirational for me. So I think I did it because I loved it. But the other part of it was like, it was therapeutic for me and it was where I needed to be going home. Like I didn't want to sit around and do nothing and probably think about how much I missed my mom or it was just the happiest place for me. And, And I remember going home and Just thinking, ah, I scored that goal or I made that pass or I had fun with my friends. Uh, I love my coach. And it was it was just the best place for me. Mm. Um, But yes, it was hard work, but it was it was just natural based on what I needed in my life.
0: And the training environment. I think, again, the reason why I like doing the podcast and like this kind of stuff, because you hear these stories and I always feel like you can always draw a line back to when you were younger and having these experiences and having those be it resonates with you for so long. And then now again, the, coming back to the training environments you try to create, obviously from the tactics, we can have everything set up. We can say, this is the game plan. We're going to combine these players with these players. But at the same time, the human element comes into play when you have players who, you know, maybe they just failed an exam or they're dealing with an issue with their boyfriend or girlfriend. There's just so many things that, that you kind of have to take into account as a coach. And it seems like that is not something that's an uphill battle for you that's something that is like that's standard that's how i just that's how i operate
1: yeah i think it's super important you go into every training and uh high expectations will never waver like we'll mm-hmm. never say we're going to be soft on you omar because you know maybe you had a really bad day you always keep the high expectations but always in the back of our mind we're thinking okay what did that player go through this day do they need extra support is something really off with them do we need to follow up after training but still within that, like how do we keep that, that training environment while still making sure that we're really in tune with how players feel?
0: Mm. So getting cut from that 17s team. <laughs> <laughs> but then you got so 17s, then Duke comes around and that's kind of within itself. What do you remember from that process?
1: So I, ODP was big when I played and I was so lucky because my coaches were Robbie Church and Jill Ellis and Jill was at UCLA at the time. So not so ironic that those were my top two school choices. Uh, Robbie is the greatest man ever. I see him everywhere. He calls me every week, and I'm like, "Hi, Robbie," thinking that he's calling about soccer or something. <laughs> and just checking on you, girl. Just <laughs> stop ignoring me, girl. I'm like, Robbie, you call every three days. I'm not ignoring you. Um, but yeah, just Robbie is the kind of coach that cares and cares and cares. Uh, he said. When we play them in the fall, he's like, girl, you can come stay with me and Linda. <laughs> I'm like, I'm pretty sure no two head coaches have ever done that, but okay, because it's you. Um, so that's the first thing that comes to mind is like how much I loved Robbie and my staff there. Obviously, my friends and teammates and, and the success that we had. We went to two Elite Eights, which at the time was really good for Duke. After I was an alumni, um, they went on to multiple Final Fours. So, it's cool to see that we were hopefully part of that building block in uh, building out Robbie's vision of his program.
0: For sure. And you were a captain your senior year. And did that, because it was a team selection, did that mean anything to you? or
1: It was super nice. Like, uh, oh, my teammates voted for me. That was awesome. Um, but I loved my team. I still love my teammates. And uh, we were really close. So I think I had a really positive college experience and I'll carry that forever.
0: Yeah. That's the, I think when I was there at Davis, people would mention stuff about like, guys, you never know. Like, this is probably the last time you guys are all going to be together and under the same structure, under the same roof, competing for something that's bigger than just yourselves. And we would all like, the alumni would come back and talk to the players and we'd be like, okay, like there's no sense of urgency for us to feel that way. And then you get to your senior year and it's like the last few games and you're like, oh crap, I'm starting to realize how much that actually resonates with me now. So how do you get your messaging To resonate with the players to create that sense of urgency
1: yeah it's hard because now they'll go on and play pro or they go away with their national team and they think as freshmen oh we're gonna be here forever and it's it's hard it's a big commitment but just knowing like every single second we play is hopefully some of the best times of each player's day which hopefully over time like the accumulation of it is some of the best times of their lives so Mm. i don't know we work hard and uh try to keep training moving very quick and get the best out of them for the hour 15 or however long we go. Uh, and then we say, off you go, have a wonderful <laughs> day. But yeah, just trying to make it fun while competitive, uh, while they feel like their individual needs are being met in terms of growing in their position.
0: How do you deal with players who may be on the outskirts of the team, who are maybe 16, 17, 18 on the roster, who maybe not get too many minutes, but you know at some point you will need them?
1: Yeah, I think uh, we try to stick as best as we can at giving every player the best training environment or setup, no matter the number of minutes. So we'll always do reserve training and every single staff member is there. Like we put as much into that. It looks exactly the same or more individual than regular training. But at the same time, like we have honestly probably like six to 10 individual meetings with players per year. Uh, and they can pop in anytime they want. So we make sure as much as we can that we show that value is not just however many minutes you put in. It's really hard for players to feel that way because uh, so many times players come in and say, I want to give to the team and I'm not playing minutes, therefore I'm not giving to the team. And we're like, false. <laughs> yeah, You give so much to the team. Here's all the examples of how you do that.
0: Mm-hmm. They seem to hear that every now and again.
1: Yeah, it's very hard because them um, it's simple math. My minutes is how much I contribute to the team, but there's so much beyond that.
0: Yeah, we had a, a young goalkeeper who was with us last season, and he's at Pittsburgh now. Uh, Cabral Carter, he, I don't know if he listens to these. I don't know who listens to him, but uh, <laughs> he was with us, and I, I didn't think I valued him as much as I should have in those moments, because we had a, a goalkeeper, Abraham Romero, who at times would be the starter, and sometimes Tomas, who was with the first team, he would come down and play for us. And while Tomas was playing those games, Cabral was in training with Abraham and you can see like Abraham treated him as a younger brother. And there were times where I let like Abraham give him his coaching points and then at the same time Cabral would ask Abraham. So they had a really good bond. And I think I was so caught up in like really improving Cabral that I never really like gave him his gave him his flowers, but like never really pulled him aside and said, dude, I know you're not playing and like you are going to go to college pretty soon here. But what you're doing for Abraham and just having him take his mind off, maybe not being selected to be the starter for the weekend, but having you there supporting him and playing your role in the right way, it goes so far to keep him mentally locked in, to show up to training and say, okay, if all else is, is, is going terribly over here, I have some footing. I can actually give this guy my expertise or my experiences. And now I have a reason to come to training. And I always look at that as a way to bottle that up and try to give that to somebody else for the goalkeepers that we have. And it's, again, it seems like that's something that you do as well.
1: Yeah, we've, with the men that train with us, there's a guy named Jack, and he's there not every day, depending on his class schedule, but he's so hard to score on. Uh, And so in every training game, like you think a goal is going in and then Jack's got it. You think (laughs) a goal is going in. But we try just like little tokens of appreciation because even people who aren't on our team but are impacting our training environment are super important to us.
0: Mm. How does Jane deal with failure? You seem so level-headed and you seem very calculated in all the work that you do. But at a certain point, that work, if it doesn't come out the way you want it to and the game plan didn't go so well... There has to be some reckoning there. So how do you deal with failure?
1: Depending on what it is or the time frame of it, like sometimes you give yourself one day or one hour, whatever it is. For example, we were upset in the tournament and it was terrible and horrible. And after a, a good solid first year, we, it ended really poorly. And I, I remember talking to Robbie and he's like, that puts a damper on the entire season. Like you did amazing. You, you beat Stanford, you beat Cal, you beat UCLA. And then boom, you lose to Irvine. I took a full day and watched old movies (laughs) that I enjoyed, (laughs) like Love and Basketball and a few other just classics. And then it it inspires you for the next year. But I think while we love soccer and it feels like life and death, um, at the end of the day, like we absolutely love what we do. And there's so much worse going on in the world. And that's happened in probably everyone's past lives Mm -hmm. that, yes, it's a result and it kills you and it makes you cry. and It makes you so upset but you use it as motivation and you go on to the next one. So while we had a, a good season, the ending I think is what inspired us for this entire spring and we say this is our preseason now for fall 2023.
0: Yeah. It gives you perspective but also gives that fire to to not rebuild completely, but cuz you obviously have pieces that worked, but rebuild in the areas that you feel uh, you could have improved in that one or two days to separate, gives you that clarity and then you can jump back into a full swing.
1: Yeah. And it uh, it was hard to watch like we upset UCLA. They were ranked one. And then you see them go on and win every single game, like with almost no hiccups. <sighs> there were, I mean, there were goals scored and, and games that maybe they weren't going to win. Uh, but I was like, I need to watch every single minute and say, uh, this hurts. This is hard. Um, but it's going to use this motivation for next year.
0: You don't get a ring, huh? <laughs> uh, the
1: two Pac-12 ones. Yeah, but <laughs>
0: well, I do have a quote from Jesse Fleming. Here. <laughs> she didn't give it to me. I just found it let me see this is one that i wanted to transition into a question so as uh, she said when you got the, the head coaching job at sc she said jane brings a willingness to learn and evolve that is contagious to those around her so how much value do you place in having the awareness that you don't know everything
1: oh every like that's how i wake up feeling every single day like i don't know everything and the game's always going to present a new problem uh, but we sit back and we say okay this is a problem we have. Um, How are we going to solve it the best that we can with the players who we have? Like evolving to me is just something that you do naturally. Like Mm -hmm. you want to be better. You want to be top in your profession. Uh, Every single time I listen to a podcast or whether it's someone in the teaching field or coaching or periodization, whatever, uh, you pull every little bit that you can and my rule for driving into work, half of the commute, I listen to a podcast and learn something. And the other half, you play Whitney Houston or Beyonce. So.
0: <laughs> you love the classics. <laughs> and it depends
1: like how if I'm awake, then I'm, maybe I'll start with the podcast. If I'm not, you start with the music.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a You have, it seems like you have your systems. Yeah. you may be surprised though. I think there are people who don't want to change. I,
1: I know. And sometimes I wonder, do they not know? Or is no one telling them? Um, But I was super lucky, like always been surrounded by people that uh, were pretty straight with me, especially my directors at my first club, and also made me feel safe enough that I can pick up the phone anytime I want and say, I remember I I called one of the directors and I said, Why do we do a 4v1 rondo with the U9 girls? And he said, Well, what do you think? And I said, Well, normally you're making things close to even numbers as possible. Like 4v1 seems a little outside of our philosophy. He said, Well, uh, eight year old players. Touch, play, touch, play. Like they're getting that with one defender. So at least it's fluent and it's mm. still moving. And they get so many repetitions of touch, pass, touch, pass, still while having to make a decision. So I found that super fascinating. But yeah, having the everyone on speed dial who I can just say, um, I remember, for example, like we played against Angel City and they had really good rotations and they knew they were going to be a lot better than us. <laughs> and uh, some of the things they did were tricky for us to solve. And after we went back and watched it and I thought, oh, I got to call my coach to ask, okay, when their six drops in, they become a three back, their wing backs go really high. How should I solve that? So I still have people that I ask questions all the time.
0: Yeah, I think people want to help people that want to be helped.
1: Yeah. And it's nice to feel safe with people to be able to do that.
0: That time that you had at UCLA, you were still a young coach. And now you're stepping into a school with such history. What were the early days like for you?
1: Early days at UCLA or at SC?
0: At UCLA first, as a young assistant coach, because you were you were the first assistant at the time, or was uh, it... I started as volunteer. Really? Yeah,
1: it, I started as volunteer, um, and then a coach took another job, and then I was full time assistant. But I was mm-hmm. actually never first assistant.
0: Wow. Yeah. So okay, take me through that then. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, just honestly, um, after. My head coach had left. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. I sort of wanted to stay in L.A., but open to whatever. And then the SC job was still open, and I kind of waited around a little to see what would fall out at UCLA. And then I just sent an email to my now boss, and I said, I'm interested in opportunities at USC soccer. I didn't know if they already had a head coach, and I just wanted to be part of a program, a prestigious team. And she said, "Uh, can you come on Zoom for this interview? And I said, "Okay." Um, And it started with that. And then it goes into a really big interview with kind of Mm -hmm. all of the admin of the university and all the higher ups. So it was actually a very daunting day. You go through probably 20 people. But Erwin, who's now at Indiana, I know when he did his interview at Duke, he said, I did an entire tactical analysis of the whole season before. And I came in and I said, this is what I think. Um, so I tried to do something similar and make sure I had slides and everything prepared and being able to answer like where are kind of the vulnerabilities within our team, what would you do to keep our attack going or improve areas that haven't gone well for us? Um, so yeah, I took a day that I did not leave the sofa and was just like, (laughs) oh my gosh, this uh, corner ah." (laughs) kick. So it was pretty crazy. Yeah.
0: From a volunteer rule. Tell me about those days then.
1: That was cool because I felt like I could pick up the pieces that I wanted to do, contribute, but I had some flexibility because I was a volunteer. So I like to do a lot of our team film analysis. And I did a lot of our session planning because I'd had a lot of, honestly, not experience in developing it, but people giving it to me and telling me what was best mm-hmm. in their thoughts. Um, and I aligned with it. So I did a lot of, yeah, kind of designing how we would train and our own analysis so yeah it was super cool like when i was at ucla every single day i remember being at training looking around and saying oh my gosh i get to do this this is my job um because in florida i was at a club and i had four teams and still living at my dad's house because (laughs) he couldn't pay my own rent um and then came out here and then la breakers gave me some awesome opportunities and pieced it all together and made it work
0: and that was 2018 yes so 2018, you're a volunteer and then 2019. So you guys won the Pac-12 in 2018 or 2019,
1: 2020? Uh, 2020,
0: 2021. Okay. I got those years mixed. Okay. I think. The last <laughs> I, two years. I think years, you're right. I, I, think you're saying, right. Yeah. I think you're right. And um, I, I honestly, I think it's, such a, it's so valuable to be in that volunteer role and be aware of where you stand in, in the totem pole, I think, because I've said it before, like nothing is expected of you. If you sit there and you just say, okay, you know what? I'm miserable. This job sucks. I have so many responsibilities, but I'm not getting compensated fairly or what I think I should be compensated wise. You can really feel like every single day is just miserable, but the more you can do things behind the scenes when there's no pressure on you, but put that pressure on yourself to make it at the highest level. Then when you transition into a paid role, like you're saying, it's plug and play. Nothing changes.
1: Yeah part of my role was during the first half of games to go up to the highest point of the stands, take pictures or videos so that we could present at halftime. Uh, And I was like, this is super cool. It was not always the best like being separate of the team, but I I liked it because I got to just look high up, you see the whole picture, you're you're getting images, you can send them to the coaches live, or you can show them at halftime to the players. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is a really awesome (laughs) that I get to at least put together the halftime presentation. But yeah, it's like you just dive in with whatever you can give and what you like to do. And I was coaching with J- Jesse Fleming. <laughs> I get to watch Jesse and Viviana and Delaney and a bunch of other players every single day. It was best job.
0: I'm sure that, Is that where most of your tactical style of play was, was formed and created? Or did you have like every step of the way you started to add little by little?
1: I think it's like a mix of all the coaches that I've worked under. Our club, I think, was really informative for me because my coach was very specific how he wanted to play, um, and I used a lot of his activities and theories all throughout my career. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think... You saw the college game right in front of your eyes over and over and over again. You learn the Pac-12. You learn different types of teams and what they like to do. Um, so by the time I came here, I think I felt like, okay, I know the school, what they like to do, what that staff likes to do. But yeah, definitely like super informative just sitting back and watching.
0: Mm. So far, I know you've done like it hasn't been the most natural path, and I don't think even natural path is a proper phrase because I don't think anybody's pathway is something that you can go and say, this is exactly how I planned it to be, very rarely, um, and I use this quote from Steve Jobs all the time, it's, when you look forward, you can never really connect anything, but then when you look back, you start saying, oh my god, I was supposed to meet that person at that time, and that's what that happened to here, and here, everything led to something, so in, in your, I guess, still young coaching uh, moments, what has been the proudest moment for you in your, in your career?
1: Uh, <laughs> that's a tough one, I think, honestly the everyday of watching and whether it's an 8-year-old player or a 22-year-old player like seeing them express themselves and battle and be confident and uh, just play their game is is what's happiest for me obviously like winning always feels really really good uh, i always say that the minute before the goal that we scored against stanford was one of my it's the clip like I would send to my friends and be like, watch my team, it's so awesome. I put it on my Instagram the other day. I've seen it, I've seen it. Um, But to me, I watched players that felt confident in making their own choices, awareness of each other, uh, and working together to score an amazing goal. So maybe that's a weird answer, but I think that minute makes me very proud. And just getting to work with the, the women who I get to work with every single day. Like, like seriously, I work with her and she goes and plays national team and I work with her and she's smartest person at USC or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> I'm just super proud and grateful.
0: That's awesome. And I think, again, the, some of the players that you do have, the profiles, national team and all that. So if any young, young women out there are listening to this, What kind of a player does Jane look for?
1: That's so funny. I just wrote this today. Okay. Um, So we have five stars and we say, uh, we don't expect you to come in being five stars, but our five stars, what's important to us, um, we say you have to work extremely hard in school, extremely hard on the soccer field. At the heart of that, the middle star we say is competitiveness. Because to me, uh, you, you can be a good student, you can be a good player, you can be a good teammate, you can be professional. But if you're not competitive, like you're never going to truly drive your team to win. Mm-hmm. So most important part is there. Um, professionalism is one because obviously you have to be on time and you have to be a very, mm-hmm. very presentable part of our our team. Sure. And then the fifth one is being a good teammate or being a good person. And I told the players, like, I'm going to ask around on campus, whether it's a person that works in our cafe Uh, whether it's a person that that works here or someone on the men's team, like, how do you treat them? Have you been welcoming? Have you shaken their hand? Have you said hello? Do you make them feel like they're included in our environment? Mm. So, uh, but when we're watching recruits, like we stick strong to that and we say, is she impacting her team? Obviously goals are easy to see. Is she stopping goals? Is she the engine behind her team? Um, But doing something that helps your team get results. Are you competitive? Like, I'll go and watch a player, and she's she's on the U-17 national team, and she's in the World Cup, and has the highest price tag, and she's not driving her team to win, and she's not making plays that push her team to be the best. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, I'll pass on that player, but I'll take the player that's playing the nine and hunted down center backs over and over and over again, scores over and over and over again, and maybe she's wearing a different jersey and doesn't have the national team on a resume, uh, but we see character wise like she works and she by the time she's in college and she's just gonna kill it. I love the character piece. Like that's the first question we ask. Like, does she work and work and work for the sake of her team?
0: That's what you ask the like, uh, the head coach of the
1: like within staff, if we say, Do we want this player? Well, she she worked today, but character wise, like this happened. So mm. um yeah, team first works extremely hard, helps her team win. Mm. Um and then obviously being a good person.
0: I think a lot of players don't recognize that we aren't uh, naive. We're very aware of what's happening off the field. And a lot of things are shared with us. And I think they kind of just go about their days and recognize, oh, if I'm good in front of you, in front of you, and you say that I'm I don't, meeting the standard, but that as soon as I go off the field, you start changing your, your, your mm-hmm. tone and your personality, it'll come back to us. So anybody who's listening and watching, just be very mindful that like, if you're going to be a part of this program or a program that the coach has those values. It needs to be your lifestyle. It can't just be something you turn on and off because, again, you're representing not just yourself but the entire group. And, again, that's it is contagious with the team.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite things that uh, coaches and I watch at halftime, we say, how do you look at your coach? How do you look at your teammates? How are you talking? If your teammate scores a goal, what do you do? We look very closely at, is she going to be a good fit and and be a good teammate? So uh, there's nothing worse, honestly, than coaching someone that's like, me, 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 before the team. Uh, So we try to filter that out as quickly as possible when we're recruiting.
0: Okay. You guys heard that first. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Jane, I've kept you here for a while, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you for having me. I'd
0: love to have you back on at some point. And and I've been trying to do the second episodes that I do with people. The first one is about their life and kind of like what they value. Um, But the second time would be more style of play and kind of how you create tactics and do all that stuff. And it seems like that people are, are like you listen to podcasts on the way into work are hungry for it so if you're willing to we'll have you back here at some point okay thank you so much i do this awkward handshake all the time because the (laughs) microphone's always in the way thank you